Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's open our Bibles this Easter Sunday morning to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We recently completed chapter 13 of our verse-by-verse study through Luke's Gospel. Well, today we're going to skip ahead chronologically to the resurrection account that's found here in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. You remember that Jesus was crucified on what we call Good Friday and laid in a borrowed tomb of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And because of the Sabbath laws, the women were not able to ceremonially prepare the Lord's body. And so they wanted to be there first thing Sunday morning to do that. And so Luke 24 details what happens next. Let's read it. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood before them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. May the Lord add his blessings, the reading and hearing of this his word. Now this morning I want us to examine five implications of Easter. There are many more implications of Easter than that. We've seen announcements about Easter all over town in the last couple of weeks. You probably received something in your mail, various churches saying come to our church and celebrate Easter. But when we think about Easter, if we're not careful, we'll become nostalgic and think about family reunions and we'll think about uh, different memories we had as children. But uh, there are some enduring truths that uh, we find when we talk about Easter and we talk about the resurrection Sunday morning. And the first one that comes to our attention in our text today is an open door. It's found in verse 2. Scripture says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now you're probably aware that bodies in the Middle East in the ancient world were buried above ground, either in a natural cave or in the case of Jesus, a large stone that had been hewn out by hand. Matthew's gospel tells us that uh, that was the case and that Jesus was the first body that was laid in this new tomb. And these tombs were then sealed with a large stone and they were whitewashed or painted regularly so that a Jewish person did not accidentally come in contact with a corpse and therefore become ceremonially unclean. And the fact that the door was open that Sunday morning is very significant because Pilate, the Roman governor, had ordered a Roman detail of soldiers to seal the tomb shut and then to stand guard over it all night. Now obviously someone beat the women to the tomb. That was their first thought. Who's here this early morning? Matthew tells us in the gospel uh, that he writes that an angel of the Lord came and rolled away the stone. Now I've often wondered about the significance of 
the removal of the stone. Because in other passages in the New Testament, after the Lord's resurrection, it seems as though Jesus is able to move in time and space without the limitations of our mortal bodies. I think the answer is that the open door is more for the women than for Jesus, more for us than for the Christ. The, the women needed to see that the tomb was empty. And they were limited in their ability to do that because they inhabited mortal bodies like ours. Now I think there's also a symbolic significance to the open door. We've been studying together on Wednesday evenings in this room the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was addressed to Jewish converts to Christianity. And one of the great themes of Hebrews is that the old covenant was but a shadow and a type of the reality that we see in the person and work of Jesus. And under the old covenant, the people were shut off, remember, from the Holy of Holies where God met only once a year on the day of atonement with the high priest. They were shut off by a veil or a curtain which was a de facto door. But when Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn from the top to the very bottom. And now we have direct access to the Father because of our relationship with Jesus. In other words, the door is open now, isn't it, for all believers to fellowship with the Heavenly Father. Now there's a second implication. Not only is there an open door, there's an empty tomb. Verse 3 says, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now I read that verse many, many times in my study this week. And I came to a conviction as I read through those verses over and over that this may in fact be the most important verse in all the Bible. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Because had those women found what they were looking for that early Sunday morning, a corpse, we would still be in our sins, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, you know that in our culture, the resurrection story has been downplayed as a result of liberal theology. It's not unlike the virgin birth. People say, well, that's not really essential to the gospel message. Some people say the literal bodily resurrection of Christ is not essential to the gospel message. But I, I beg to differ because the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus has been a core fundamental doctrine of Christianity since the birthday of the church at the day of Pentecost. You remember Peter's sermon to those folks there in Jerusalem Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 32 records it. Listen to these words. This is Peter preaching. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross and by the hands of godless men put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, Peter says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ 
that he would neither be abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. So the first evangelistic sermon ever preached by the Apostle Peter there on the day of Pentecost was not only included the resurrection, it was the main point of his thesis that Jesus is alive. Now these were Jewish people. They honored and revered David as their patriarch. And he says, you know what? We all know where David's tomb is. And if we went down there and we opened up David's tomb, you know what we're going to find inside? David. Or what's left of him. He says, not so with the Lord's tomb. It's empty because he is alive. And friends, the empty tomb is what separates true biblical Christianity from every other ism and every other philosophy in the world. Because we don't serve a dead prophet, we serve a living Lord. And this is the third implication of the resurrection that these women found out. We serve a living Lord. Look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, about what? Because the door was open and the tomb was empty. They're wondering what can this mean? Behold, two men, and the other gospels tell us these were in fact angels, suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. He is the living one. I think the Holy Spirit inspired that because this puts Jesus in contrast with the other gods of the world, which are the dead ones, aren't they? Psalm 135.15 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouth. Now last Friday night, John Parker, one of our former staff members, was here with his wife Audrey and we were visiting before the service and we were reminiscing about experiences we had together over many years serving here and uh, we got to laughing about one particular mission trip that we both went on and as I recall that trip was down to Guatemala and we went far far back into the jungles of Guatemala where our task was to uh, construct a little church building out of rough hewn lumber there in the jungle. And uh, we did that in one day. We put down some poles, we nailed some rough hewn lumber, put a tin roof on, and that evening we had church service. And uh, later on after the service was over, the little church planter there, the indigenous uh, Indian from Guatemala, came to our tent where we were staying and he shared his testimony of how he was converted. He, like most of those Indians in the jungle, uh, worshiped false gods. In fact, his particular village god was this little god about this tall, he said, that was made out of the same kind of lumber that we built the church building with. And they had carved him and the women in the village had made him some little clothes and a little hat to wear. And every so often they would bring him bananas and oranges to eat. Of course he never did. But he lived in a little bird cage that someone had purchased that was locked up. And one day this uh, gentleman before he was converted had gone to town and he'd heard a missionary, a Christian missionary preach about a risen Christ. And he came back home and as he laid in his uh, cot that night in his little, little hut, he began contemplating what he'd heard and contrasting a living savior with that God who lived in their village. And he said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put God to the test. And he went out and he unlocked that bird cage and he said this, if he's alive, he'll be gone in the morning. He'll escape. But if he's dead, he'll still be there. And he woke up 
As the sun woke up and he rushed to the center of town where the little god lived in the birdcage and guess what he found? He was still there. And he took the god out, he said, and he ripped off the clothes that the women had made and he found the knife marks that his ancestors had made and he threw the idol on the ground and said, we've been lied to. This god is dead. And he determined from that point on to serve a living savior. We, friends, serve a living Lord who loves us, who cares for what we care about, who is alive and is as powerful today as he's ever been, who hears our prayers and who forgives our sins. The Apostle Paul in his various missionary journeys encountered people who served dead gods. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he's talking about the, those who lived in the city of Thessalonica who had come out of pagan worship and he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey came to the city of Lystra and there they encountered a man who was lame and had been since birth and in the name of Jesus they prayed and his legs were restored and the people were so impressed that they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods and they named Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And this is their reaction, Acts 14, 14. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to return from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and sea and everything in them. Now we might find it hard to relate living where we do and when we do to people who worship idols made of wood and gold and silver. But friends, we live surrounded by people everywhere who foolishly worship things just as dead and just as impotent as wooden statues. They worship money, they worship things, they worship entertainment, they worship power, they worship their career, they worship in short pleasure. And it is our task as Bible-believing saints to call on them to turn from those worthless things to a living God. That's what personal evangelism really is. Now there is a fourth implication of Easter and that is a fulfilled mission. Look at verse six. Verse six, he is not here. This is the angel speaking to the women, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee saying that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again and they remembered his words. Now I'm always trying to remind us, especially during the Easter season, over and over I remind us, don't think of Jesus as a victim. He was not, and he is not, and he never will be. And that's what the angel is saying to these women. They're confused, and so mercifully, he jogs their memory. He says, don't you remember when Jesus was teaching up in Galilee, he predicted this. He says he's gonna be turned over to sinful men, he's gonna be crucified and the third day rise again. And, and then they sort of came out of that fog of grief they were in. And the scripture says they remembered his words. And so Jesus' arrest, his suffering, his passion, his trial and his death were all part of God's eternal plan of redemption. The resurrection verified God's satisfaction with Christ's sacrifice. We call this the doctrine of propitiation. He was satisfied, his sense of justice, that is. 
And so in other words, Jesus completed, didn't he, the rescue mission that he was sent to accomplish by his heavenly father. And that's what these angels were reminding these women of. They reminded how it happened exactly in the order that Jesus said it would. And remember when Jesus was out preaching and doing miracles, he would often say to the people that he healed, now don't tell anyone. And the reason is it was not yet time because he was in control, wasn't he? Even when word came to him from Herod that if you don't get out of this region, I'm gonna put you to death. He said, tell that fox that I'm in control of this agenda and not him in so many words. And so his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection unfolded not one second too soon and not one second too late. Just as it was appointed to do in the secret counsels of God. And the scripture says that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus, including his crucifixion, including his resurrection. And now, having accomplished that mission that God the Father sent him to accomplish, it's now our job to take the wonderful message to the ends of the earth. And that is the fifth implication of the resurrection, this wonderful message. Verse 10, now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Now there's a song in our Baptist hymnal that we don't sing very often. We usually dust it off at uh, mission conference times. And it, it says this, there's a story to tell to the nations. And that's exactly right. It's not just once a year at mission conference time that we ought to, to remind one, or, one another of this. We do have a story to tell and it is the story of Jesus. And you say, well, I don't really know how to do personal evangelism. Well, um, there's, there's two verses in the New Testament. If you'll memorize and study these two verses, you have a story to tell to the nations. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses three and four, the apostle Paul summarizes and encapsulates the gospel and an economy of words. And this is what he says. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that's it. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And Paul says that is the message that he preaches wherever he went. And he went all over the known world. But his message never changed. He said, God sent Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a literal death at his crucifixion. And on the third day, he rose again. And if you know that, and if you believe that, you have a story to tell the nations. And it is, in fact, a marvelous message. And that is the message that these dear women went back and told the men who were left behind. All that these women did was tell the truth. And you know that's what the Lord calls us to do. We like to say around here that we are an Acts 1-8 church. Acts 1-8, Jesus gave his commission to his disciples right before he ascended there on the Mount of Olives. He says, you shall be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And you know what is required of a witness in a legal case is that they simply tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 
And so here's what these women did. I take it they rushed back to where the men were and they told them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That the door was open, that the tomb was empty, and the angel reminded them of what Jesus said. And so they were the first evangelists. Now, just like with those ladies, though, we are not responsible for how people respond to the message. Isn't that freeing to know that we are not responsible for how people respond to the gospel? Now, we're not to be neutral as to whether or not they do. We ought to plead with them and beg them and pray that they would receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But we are not, as evangelists, ultimately responsible how people respond to the message. And, and just as in that day, 2,000 years ago, people are going to have varying responses. Aren't you glad that when we share the gospel, some believe? The Lord is still in the saving business, isn't He? Last Sunday, we had a, a baptism class and it was full to capacity. May it be that way every month. We would pray and we plead for the lost in this community to bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus. But, but we are also realists. We know that not everyone will believe according to the scriptures. Some will, and we ought to be thankful for everyone that does. But some will think it nonsense. Look at verse 11. But these words appear to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. I think that's important wording there. It didn't say they could not or should not, they would not. Because here are the people that had more evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be than anyone. These are the men that had been walking and talking planet Earth with Jesus nearly 24 hours a day for three and a half years. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen him walk on the water just a few days earlier. Many of them certainly were there when Jesus called a dead man, Lazarus, forth from the tomb. And yet, they didn't believe. They still had to be convinced. Some thought it was nonsense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that there are two broad categories of humans in the world, the Greeks and the Jews. And he says this simple message of salvation by faith is to the Greeks foolishness, nonsense, and to the Jews it is a stumbling block. But he also says, but for those who are being saved is the power of God, isn't it? There are some in every generation, in every epoch of history, in every people group on planet earth that when they hear the gospel, they'll be saved. Some will believe, some will think it's nonsense, and some will want to examine for themselves. Look at verse 12, I didn't read this earlier. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Our job is first to believe the gospel and then to tell the gospel to the nations. But so far in our message today, we have been talking to the masses and about the masses. We've been talking about humanity writ large. We've been talking about nations and cultures and people groups. So I wanna take the microscope and turn the intensity up a little bit. And I wanna zoom in real close to each of us as individuals and ask you three important questions. Number one is this, what about you? I said earlier that we serve a living Savior. I was talking about the church universal. All true believers everywhere serve a living Savior, don't we? But let me ask you this, do you serve a living Savior? 
Do you serve a living Savior? Have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or is he some figure of history that you admire from afar, that you tell your children to emulate, who you sing songs about without really any firsthand knowledge about his power? Is Christ alive to you? Not only in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but is he living through you? In other words, are you born again? And if so, if you are, that leads to my second question, are you telling others the good news? Because friends, that's really why we're here, isn't it? As beautiful as the choir sang today, believe it or not, there's gonna be better singing in heaven. As wonderfully as the orchestra played, there's gonna be better music in heaven. And as wonderful as the Christian fellowship is here at First Baptist Church of Keller, and what a deep sense of unity we feel with one another, it's going to be accentuated in heaven when we gather around the throne of the Lord Jesus. So what is left to do here that we can't do better in heaven is to tell the good news. Because the only people that are going to be in heaven are those who are born again. And so we have this opportunity so long as we live to tell others. That's exactly what these women did. They didn't keep this good news to themselves. They didn't run off and, and say, let's not talk to anybody about this. They went straight away to where the others were gathered and they told them the things that they had seen. That's our task as well. And so one final question to you. If you serve a risen Savior and if so you're telling others about this good news. How does this good news that Christ is alive change the way you live? What I mean by that is as you examine the way you order your days, the way you spend your money, the way you make decisions, how does the fact that we serve a living Savior factor into those decision-making processes? Or are you living just like your lost friends and neighbors and coworkers? Are you going hard after the same thing they're going after? Or is your life markedly different? Do you care about the things that they care about? Or do you care about the things of God? In other words, as, as Colossians says, have you set your affections in heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father? Because Paul says if we do, we'll come to the understanding that Christ is our life. That, that's a fundamental fundamentally different way than most people, even calling themselves Christians living here in the Western world, order their days. Because most of us, if truth be known, we think about our life like an ice tray. We've got this segment for our work. We've got this cell for our entertainment. We've got this cell for family time. And, and then we've got this cell for our church life. And, and never shall any of them mix and mingle. But the Bible says if we're born again, Christ is is our life. Every decision of life, be it work, entertainment, or family, or financial, or otherwise, is run through the lens of a biblical worldview. We come to understand that Jesus cares about every single solitary aspect of our life. And I, I'm convinced that these people that were verified that day in their belief in Christ with a empty tomb were never the same again, aren't you? I know that to be true because here you have this little ragtag of Galileans, former fishermen, 
tax collectors, religious zealots. And from that little group, when the Holy Spirit came on, on the day of Pentecost, they went out and the scripture says, turn the world upside down. The world is never the same, is it? There are countless millions, if not billions, of believers in the world because of what happened there that day. Do you remember what Jesus predicted in one of his parables back in the Gospel of Luke? He compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. He said the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds, but when it's planted, it comes up and it grows so large that even the birds of the field can roost in it. And from that humble beginning of those few little believers in the upper room, from the testimony of those women who went and found the door open and the tomb empty, the gospel went out. And the truth is, every one of us here today, if we're born again, heard that message from someone in the previous generation who heard that message from a generation before them. And we could trace it all the way back to that little group of people there in Jerusalem. Thank the Lord that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, we are grateful that we serve a living Lord. We don't serve dead and dumb idols. We serve one who has uh, proven his superiority and his power over death, the grave, and of Satan. Father, for those of us who put our faith and trust in him, we are said to be in Christ. We don't have to fear death or dying because he has defeated it. And we don't have to fear the righteous judgment of God that we deserve because he's taken it on himself at the cross. And Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Father, with so many in this room who are truly born again, I say thank you for saving our souls. Thank you, Father, for forgiving our sins. Thank you, Jesus for voluntarily leaving the glories of heaven and taking on human flesh and living a perfect life and fulfilling your mission of dying in the place of sinners such as us. And now, Father, we have a story to tell to the nations. It's the most marvelous message in the world that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And Lord, I would pray if there be even one in the sound of my voice today who does not know Christ in the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day that they would bow their knee to his lordship, recognize their personal guilt and sinfulness, confess it, repent of it, and by faith receive the forgiveness offered through the shed blood of Jesus by faith alone. Lord, do this, we pray, not for our sake, but for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.